Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Okay, everyone. We are getting really close to June 27th. What's on June 27th? The Intelligence Speech Conference. It's going to be online, and you should buy tickets. Why should you buy tickets? I did the math earlier, and it looks like there's going to be 27 and two-thirds hours worth of content for a very, very low price, depending on when you hear this. I'm going to be doing four different sessions. I'm not doing any of my own individual sessions. I'm doing a thing on ancient and renaissance cities with Ryan Stitt. Then I'm going to be doing a thing on public health and urban planning with Raven of the Tiny Vampires podcast. And then I'm going to be moderating the medieval history panel, and I'm going to be moderating a panel on STEM for some reason. Uh, basically, there was no one else to moderate. So, you all need to go. There's going to be so many different talented people, and we we really don't want to just be talking to ourselves. So please, uh, go on and sign up. Now, I should say, 26 and two-thirds hours of content. You will be able to see about a quarter of that at any given time during any one given experience of the conference. However, everything's going to be recorded, and for people who pay for tickets, it's going to be available to see for free in the months afterwards, and it won't be available to anyone else. So, you should go buy tickets. It's definitely worth it. It's going to be a great thing for everybody, and it's going to be a fun time. So, uh, go do it. Link in the show notes. Hey, everybody. I've been sort of wanting to post something about this for the last couple of weeks, but I could never find the right place to talk about it. It's something that came up in my mind after I finished the episodes on non-normative populations, not including women, but before I started doing my research on women. As you may know, peek behind the curtains, I am the secretary for the Agora Podcast Network, and part of my duties involve um, the process of vetting new applicants. And one of the applicants we got recently is the excellent podcast uh, Black Wall Street 1921 by Nia Clark. It is an exceptional, exceptional show. For those who are unaware of what Black Wall Street was, uh, Black Wall Street was a fairly wealthy black neighborhood in Tulsa, Oklahoma, that was destroyed in the so-called um, Tulsa Race Massacre, or it's sometimes called the Tulsa Race Riot. Nia's show is a really fantastic treatment of this subject particularly for, for digging into a lot of the research around this one particular incident, and then, you know, doing really deep background, a deep covering of the event itself, and then doing the, the effects. One of the things that came up in that show, which is relevant to my show, oddly enough, is terminology. The 1921 
event that this show is about is often written of in history books, if it's written of at all, as the 1921 Tulsa race riot. Modern historians, uh, and Nia Clark has followed this example, modern historians don't like the term race riot in this context anymore because it sort of implies at least from a modern sense, the term riot has this connotation that there's some sort of equality, that you sort of have two groups who are out there flipping out at each other, and it's just chaos and anarchy. The modern term that's preferred for the 1921 incident is the 1921 race massacre, because there really wasn't a second side. There are a smattering of people who are trying to defend themselves, but mostly what you're talking about is large groups of white people coming from the surrounding area, going into Tulsa and massacring the population, and then acting like there was some sort of chaos going on. In retrospect, most of the evidence is that this was not some sort of event where black people went crazy and the white people were defending themselves or something like that. It was just a semi-spontaneous, but supported by many of the local authorities event where people went into an area and started attacking people because of who they were. When I was doing those episodes on non-normative populations, one of the things that I ran into in terms of terminology was the term pogrom. You may have heard the term, you may not have which is ultimately why I didn't use the term. But actually, it's a fairly accepted piece of historical terminology. The original use applied to Eastern Europe during an era when the Tsar was trying to drive out the Jewish population of uh, Russia, Poland, Ukraine, that area. But he couldn't just expel them because Europe didn't do that kind of thing anymore. I I'm heavily oversimplifying. So there was a official unofficial policy, or an unofficial official policy, however you want to talk about it. And it manifested itself in terms of these situations where local authorities, potentially working with the local populace, potentially not, would stir up trouble, create some excuse for an event, and then whip up angry mobs of people to go in and attack Jewish communities. Ultimately, the army might be called in to try and quell the violence, which would mostly mean continuing to attack the Jewish community. The term pogrom has broadened now to become any situation where you have this sort of unofficial official policy, where you have participation of significant portions of the government in a act of non-military violence against a population because of who they are. Though I should say the term is usually used for some sort of anti-Semitic event. So this term pogrom has now been applied to many of these uh, events across European history in the Middle Ages and stuff like that. I didn't use it in the episode, though I felt it was appropriate, just because I wasn't sure that everyone would be familiar with the term pogrom, and I wanted to be clear. So I said anti-Semitic riots. But actually, as I've been listening to Nia's show, and as I've been thinking about it, I sort of regret that. I sort of wish that I had taken the time to explain what pogroms were and use the term more appropriately. Because again, in modern parlance, riot sort of implies that there's two sides. When in fact, in most of these situations, you just had a bunch of Jews in an area getting massacred by people coming in from the outside, some of whom tried to defend themselves, some of whom committed murder-suicide pacts, and in general, it, it, it was horrible tragedy. But how do you convey all that in one word? Pogrom probably gets as close as you want to get. 
Now, why am I talking about this all now? You probably know. I do generally endeavor to keep this show politics-free, and I'm not going to tell any of you how you should feel about current events. At the same time, I've used this uh, show in the past to speak out against anti-Semitic violence against the Orthodox community. At this current juncture, I do need to say something. There's definitely many ways to perceive the events of the last couple weeks, and we ultimately won't really have a good idea of what happened, uh, probably for many years. However, I think it's fair to say that the black community in this country has suffered more than their fair share of killings by the police, that this is a systemic problem, and that it needs to be resolved. What we've seen over the last couple of weeks is that this isn't limited to the African-American community. Uh, when, when the relatively privileged position that we've given police departments in this country is threatened by people exercising their First Amendment rights, police departments in this country have responded by attacking the life, liberty, and happiness of the protesters with physical force. This has occurred to people who are black, white, young, old, walking on the streets, or even in their own property. I don't know how this should all shake out. I don't know how it should all shake out. But I think that it's impossible for this country to go back to the assumptions of a few weeks ago. And I think that uh, some sort of reform within the police departments of this country are necessary uh, and long overdue. And I will just conclude by saying that while all lives do matter, it's black lives that we're worried about right now, because they're the ones being choked to death over the course of nine minutes on live TV. I'm sorry this intro has gone on long, and I'm sorry if this discussion has made anyone uncomfortable. I do assure you I will be going back to the history for the rest of the episode. Uh, it was just something that I did not feel that I could be quiet about. And honestly, I've rewritten this whole thing like nine times and re-recorded it a bunch of times. Poor Andrews edited it more times than I care to think about. <sighs> Kid's a saint. Anyway, let's get to the episode. Oh, also. And that you should all go check out Nia Clark's new show, Black Wall Street 1921, which is now a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I should also just like to take this moment to say that while I generally attempt to keep this show clean, I will go into more detail uh, as we get into the show. Given the show's title, you will be aware that this show is about sex stuff, and though I do not go into any gratuitous detail, please keep that in mind if you have kids present. In the European Middle Ages, society was composed of three separate yet equally important parts. Those who prayed, those who fought, and those who worked. But this is not their story. 4.36 p.m., the city of Hippo, while juggling knives. If you expel the prostitutes from society, prostitution will spread everywhere. Prostitutes in a town are like sewers in a palace. If you take away the sewers, everything will be filthy. Quote from The Writings of St. Augustine, as read by Chris Stewart of the History of China podcast. Paris, sometime in the 1200s, pseudographically pretending to be Albertus Magnus.
This sickness happens in women because they are full of corrupt and poisonous menses, and therefore it is good that these women, whether young or old, often use men, so that this matter might be expelled. And this is especially helpful in young women, because they are full of humidity. And this is why young women, when they begin to have sex, become very fat before they conceive and have to take care of children. It is care or worry that makes one age and therefore lose this humidity, as the philosopher says says in The Secret of Secrets, and these women do not experience it. Rather, they greatly desire coitus because of the abundance of matter that they have. Therefore, it is a sin against nature to prevent this and to keep them from having sex with the man they choose. And this practice, of course, goes against custom, but that is off the present topic. Quote from The Secrets of Women by St. Albertus Magnus as read by B.T. Newberg of the History of Sex podcast. Everyone's right and no one is sorry That's the start and the end of the story From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning Greetings, my name is Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia, the Wars of the Reformation. This is episode 64, Women Part 2, Mary and Eve, and Sex. In the last few episodes, we've been looking at those who, for one reason or another, fell outside what medieval society considered normal. First, we looked at Jews, Muslims, and lepers, and had several episodes on that. Last time out, we began our look at women, and discussed the historiographical context of me even doing episodes on women, the deep cultural context in the Greek and Christian cultural traditions of Rome, and we ended off by discussing the concept of the duality of Eve and Mary. In the worldview of the Middle Ages, classical and Christian traditions portrayed women as temptresses, weak, foolish, or infantile. The most common example was Eve, the foolish woman who caused original sin. But the late Roman, Jewish, and Christian traditions also emphasized that women were actually people, had souls, and could live lives of extraordinary Christian virtue. The cult of Mary was still in its infancy in the early Middle Ages, but her example had already become a major part of the Christological debates of the early Middle Ages, and Mary would be held up as an example of a perfect human woman. Today, we're going to continue this theme by looking at cultural perceptions of sexuality in general, female sexuality in particular, and then finish up with a close look at the life of medieval nuns who were women who didn't have sex. But first, let's have a podcast footnote. Podcast footnote. So, given the topic, I feel it's only fair that I give everyone out there, but particularly the parents, nice big heads up. I'm not going to be discussing this in gratuitous detail, and thus nothing in this episode is going to be pornographic. I'm definitely going to be tamer than several of my sources, all of which felt the need to discuss which sexual positions the church felt were and were not allowed. My goal here is to tell you all about the wider social and cultural perceptions of sex and the inevitable implications of those perceptions upon the most common object of sexual desire in a male-dominated society. It is basically impossible to say anything meaningful about the place of women in any society without discussing this issue in some way. I know this might be an awkward topic, especially if you listen with your kids, or your parents. If that is the case, maybe give this a listen through without them in the room before you let them listen to this one. Or at least have them listen to it separately, if you're just worried about being embarrassed. For everyone else, we are all basically adults here. Whatever your views on the subject, sex is a thing that people do. It is a powerful force in organizing any society, our society in particular, and as such, it's worth at least an episode. Hopefully, we can all be mature about this. If you need to giggle, go wait out in the hall. Okay? We ready? 
End podcast footnote. Now, I'm no scholar of religion, but I think it's fair to say that Christianity was never a huge fan of sex. To paraphrase a number of passages from the New Testament and the Church Fathers, the Christian doctrine is one focused on trying to get people to focus less on this life, which is ephemeral and full of pain, and focus more on the next life, which is eternal and full of nice stuff, contentment, and the like. Sex and other worldly pleasures threaten to distract a Christian from their real goal, which is more about the contentment and the next life. I'll leave that to Christian scholars. But as sex goes, the beef Christianity had was theoretically equally applicable to women as to men. Indeed, no less a figure than St. Paul said, In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, nor male or female. That's Galatians 3.28, I'm told. Which sounds pretty egalitarian to me. Unfortunately, he also said, Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Which is less nice, though it doesn't have anything to do with sex. As I covered last time out, Christianity did not emerge in a vacuum. The culture of the Mediterranean basin was one of deep misogyny, which deeply feared the mystical powers of female physicality. This fear often originated at a deep physiological level. For example, Greek medical texts state that sex during a woman's period would cause illness and death in men, but that if the menstrual bud is collected and sprayed on crops, it can be used as an effective insecticide. If any of you out there are farmers, neither myself nor the USDA recommend attempting this use of insecticide. However, if you do, let me how it goes, as we could all use a laugh these days. Just remember to get enthusiastic consent when collecting the menstrual fluid. Farming advice aside, Christianity in the Middle Ages emerged, once again, with an approach to sex that a charitable observer might call nuanced, a non-charitable observer might call slightly incoherent, and what I call it depends on the day and my mood. Sex is, in general, sinful, but childbearing is good, and it's recognized that people have these urges. So marriage, in this view, is a kind of escape valve created by God as a protected space where people could do sex and have it be okay and have children. Depending on which commentator you are reading, and which era they were writing in, sex for the purpose of conception is not sinful, but only if you don't enjoy it. Other observers said that you are allowed to enjoy it, but you're not allowed to initiate it? A husband or wife can only initiate sex if they think the partner secretly wants sex, but is trying to be good, because in that case, you're doing something nice for your partner, not for yourself, and no one is being sinful by being selfish. Which is actually kind of sweet in a really, really weird and prudish sort of way. I don't know how anyone got anything done being that repressed. Anyway, having sex for pleasure is a small sin that one can atone for with light penances, like almsgiving, as long as there's no attempt to prevent pregnancy and the lusts of the people involved are not excessive. Whatever that means. Podcast footnote. Let's say a few words about contraception and abortion. There are a variety of views about what means of contraception were available and how effective they were in the Middle Ages. Some, such as coitus interruptus and the rhythm method, we have a great deal of evidence on because people still try and do that today, and tests have been conducted by modern researchers and scientists and doctors. They are more effective than nothing, but if you're looking for medical advice, don't come to me. Other methods involve various herbs, incantations, charms, and pieces of fruit placed in various locations, and these methods range from plausible to dangerous and have mostly not been tested to my knowledge, and in a few specific cases they just can't be tested because they involve plants that have been lost to modern science. 
The principles of abortions were not really understood since pregnancy wasn't fully understood in the Middle Ages, and many of the measures that we can point to from medical texts in this area about something we might call an attempted abortion are either extremely dangerous attempts at inducing miscarriage or horrific late-term emergency surgeries undertaken only when something had gone horribly, horribly wrong. In these cases, the difference between a cesarean section and an abortion in this era were mainly down to which party, if either, survived the procedure. There were also uh, abortificant measures that were along the lines of what we saw in contraception, you know, herbs, incantations, charms, etc. All of this is to say that, like any aspect of pre-modern medicine, some of the techniques available might not have been entirely without merit, but they were, let's say, extremely ineffective by modern standards, if not terrifyingly dangerous. As a result, we can say confidently that women in the Middle Ages probably didn't have a lot in the way of effective contraception options by modern standards. But at the same time, we know that they tried very, very hard to find some pretty much through the entire Middle Ages. In fact, we have numerous laws banning doctors from telling women about these options, laws whose repetition tends to prove their ineffectiveness. End podcast footnote. In any case, the complete picture here is one where women are celebrated for bearing children, for being mothers, for being physically attractive to men, while also being blamed for their participation in all the things necessary to make themselves attractive and become mothers. For example, note the numerous written screeds and sermons that angrily rail against women for their vanity in putting on makeup, and then later praise women for being beautiful. As you might imagine, this twisted medieval society up into some strange knots. To explain what I mean, let's go into the meat of today's episode by examining the strange role played by prostitutes in medieval society. Now, a few episodes back, I brushed past the role of prostitution in medieval society, noting that the justification of it was pretty gross, but would require its own episode to elaborate. Well, here we are. The best way to explain the medieval relationship to prostitution is given by, who else, St. Augustine. If you expel the prostitutes from society, prostitution will spread everywhere. Prostitutes in a town are like sewers in a palace. If you take away the sewers, everywhere will be filthy. Uh, end quote. And, yes, that was by St. Augustine. Let's take this apart, because this one contains volumes of information. What St. Augustine is saying here is that prostitutes are the sewers of sexual desire. Let me elaborate. What he's saying is that sex is sinful, but most people have strong sexual urges. While it would be better for everyone to control themselves, most people can't, and so prostitutes serve an important social function as the dumping ground for society's sexual urges. If such sex workers didn't exist, people would go around all willy-nilly, giving in to their sexual urges wherever and whenever they simply couldn't take it anymore, and with whatever woman caught their fancy. Thankfully, we have prostitutes around, so that whenever we think we might not be able to control ourselves any longer, we can procure their services, and therefore all the good, honorable women of the world won't be bothered by society's lusts. So from a modern perspective, there are just layers and layers of gross in what I just said, and I do want to reiterate that I was just paraphrasing St. Augustine, but I think I need to keep going to elaborate just what all this says about how medieval society thought about sex, women in general, and prostitutes in particular. The first thing is that women are denied any agency in sexual desire. To be clear, we do have some slight evidence of male sex workers even in the Middle Ages, but by and large, most sex workers then as now were women, and most of their clients were heterosexual men. And to be clear, that was also the case in St. Augustine's time, whether or not you consider that the Middle Ages. So, implicit in this is that it is the male sexual urge that matters in society. 
Not that people in the Middle Ages thought women didn't want to have sex. On the contrary, it was felt that women were simultaneously so horny, weak, and stupid that literally any man could walk up and talk them into leaping into bed with them. Needless to say, women were considered to have little agency in the matter, and men all the power socially. It is also hypocritical and fairly self-serving, since this justifies the need for big, smart men to always police female behavior, even while providing them with prostitutes as an outlet for their own failings. But then, history doesn't care if I call long-dead men names, even though they're all stupid dummy heads. This conception reinforces what I've said about how Christian theologians viewed sex, in this case literally comparing it to sanitary waste. St. Augustine was not the first to use this analogy, but in the Middle Ages it would become, let's say, extremely popular. In many legal documents of the time, for example, the polite word for a sexual indiscretion was to say that the person was incontinent. For those of you who aren't aware, incontinent means that someone is unable to control their bowels or bladder. So in this context, what they're saying is that it's more polite to say a person couldn't stop peeing themselves than it was to say that they couldn't keep themselves from having sex. Which is a pretty clearly negative position to take, I would say. And given this extremely negative mainstream view of sex, prostitutes as a group were always going to be reviled social outcasts, just like the sewer workers to whom they were often compared. Unfavorably. On the other hand, prostitutes are in some sense performing a valuable service for humanity. By putting their bodies, reputation, and possibly even their souls in jeopardy, they were preserving the social order and saving the honor of all the other women, from all those sneaky, smart-talking manfolk all over the place. Furthermore, it was felt that most prostitutes had been reduced to the life they led due to economic necessity, for which they might not be as culpable as, say, a noblewoman who indulges in an affair simply for fun. This all took some strange turns. As we discussed in the episodes on medieval cities, prostitution was often treated as a public health issue, a practice that couldn't be eliminated, but also had to be kept in check. Prostitutes were supposed to be restricted to special districts, often just outside the city walls. For example, the city of Bristol at one time banished all prostitutes and lepers to areas outside the city walls. In later years, prostitutes often had to wear special humiliating clothing, as were the Jews in a similar time period. Um, during the same time period, in Avignon, Jews and prostitutes also shared a ban on touching fruit displayed at shop stalls, which probably made it hard to pick melons. But these prostitution districts often became commercial hubs in their own right, since they were very popular, and would be a good place to set up uh, food stalls and stuff like that. This would notably happen in the Stews in London Southwark, a prostitution district on the south bank of the Thames, and it used to be owned by the Bishop of London, it contained a whole bunch of brothels, a whole bunch of restaurants catering to the clients of the brothels. It had some other industri industrial stuff going on, and these days it contains the Shard. Ultimately, many cities came to recognize prostitutes as people engaged in somewhat legitimate businesses. And in a few cities, they may even have formed guilds, although this also might be a myth. I'm not sure. As for why women became prostitutes, the factors that pertain nowadays are certainly in evidence in the Middle Ages, though in some sense, more so. In an age with, let's say, imperfect social safety nets even by American standards, many women certainly did it for economic reasons. Many suffered from mental illnesses, some legitimately enjoyed the work, and many were shanghaied into it by pimps and kept in a kind of slavery by a combination of physical, mental, and economic intimidation. Indeed, then as now, the church and civil society reserved its most complete hatred for the pimps and johns who were clearly abusing the women in question. 
and yet somehow it was never the pimps or Johns who had to wear funny hats, or who had to live in a special part of town, or be treated as outcasts by the rest of society, or generally get arrested. The more things change. In all, prostitution flourished in the Middle Ages and was simultaneously protected by the church and legal authorities while also being kept in a position of contempt. Before I move on, it is worth noting that the entire Augustinian justification of the place of prostitution in society is alarmingly close to how medieval theologians viewed the justifications for marriage. And those parallels went so far as to have at least one minor theologian say that because prostitutes were only seeking to put bread on the table, providing their services was only a sin if they enjoyed it, which is almost word for word the same way the church viewed sex and marriage. This is a bit of a niche position, but it was never really condemned. Now, most of what we have said above is only relevant to prostitutes living in urban areas, but it is worth remembering that most of the population in the Middle Ages lived in the countryside. Rural peasant prostitutes are not the kind of person that is likely to make a strong impact in our records. Based on the research I have done for this show, there is evidence, I would say, of prostitution in the countryside. I don't think any professional historians would disagree with me, though they didn't delve too deeply into the rural-urban divide on this subject in my sources. So, take this as for what it's worth. In the sources from my readings on Jews and Muslims in medieval Spain, there are many references to traveling prostitutes, and from other references we might expect such itinerant sex workers to have, like others plying their wares around the rural countryside, we might expect them to have frequented markets and fairs of the Middle Ages. The Geises refer to evidence that prostitutes in rural areas primarily may have done it as a side gig to other work. For example, women working at, or even in many cases owning, roadside inns or taverns might offer their services to clients in addition to hawking beer and various foodstuffs. Many villages also had women described as having poor reputations, but whose specific character flaws are never elaborated on in the records. Could at least some of these individuals have been performing sex work? We can't really say, but generally when you're talking about women, the word reputations has a somewhat sexual connotation in this time. But, again, we can't really say. Indeed, as we in general move on from those openly recognized as prostitutes and into the wider informal economy of the Middle Ages, the boundary between sex worker and, well, everyone else can become pretty sketchy. There are many examples of brothels working under the guise of seemingly legitimate businesses. For example, there was a woman who owned an embroidery workshop that catered to the Bishop of London and many other members of the clergy. At least it did until one of the girls who was apprenticed there escaped and informed the authorities that the owner of the shop had never trained her or any of the other women in embroidery and had, instead, gotten them drunk and forced them to have sex with customers, many of whom were clerics. This blurriness created something of a problem for the upstanding members of society because, contrary to every stereotype you may have heard about the Middle Ages, a bunch of people who are living constantly on the edge of starvation couldn't keep half of the population out of the workforce. Women did stuff, and many of them had valuable and necessary skills. We'll get back to this in a later episode, but women were engaged in almost any craft or business you could think of in the Middle Ages, and one generally did want to avoid the perception that one was frequenting prostitutes, or was a prostitute, when one was engaged in a, a skilled craft. Along with other more theological issues, this was the principal reason that cities banished prostitutes to the outskirts. It was so that anyone who was within city walls could be trusted, and everyone's reputation would be fine going into the embroidery shop down the road. That said, even if you set aside women in skilled trades, almost every well-off medieval household had a live-in staff of servants. 
even people who could only be described as comfortable would have a servant or two. And actually, this was the case in rural areas as well. Many farmers had live-in servants. So what was the status of these women? During the height of the Roman Empire, the answer was grimly clear. Such women would have been slaves, and they would fairly explicitly have been there for sexual purposes as much as anything else. But sometimes, between then and when our records pick up in the early Middle Ages, European society changed. Male sexual promiscuity was no longer approved of. Slaves were less available in general, but rich people still needed someone to wash their socks. Whatever the specific reasons, European society changed, and servant women were no longer expected to provide sexual services to the household explicitly. Indeed, respectable families, peasant and noble, would regularly send their daughters off to work and live with other families just as they did with their sons. They might apprentice to someone with a skill, but even more likely were the girls who would work as servants for a few years to earn enough money to provide a dowry, which is something we'll talk about more next episode. Financial rewards aside, noble and common families often viewed this as part of the girl's education, as she would learn basic manners, how to run a household, and the like, in part from doing all the activities herself, in part from watching the mistress of the house do these activities, and in part by give, being given regular beatings. Because in the Middle Ages, this was considered good pedagogy, and part of the justification of sending the kid away was that the biological parents might be too soft on their kids. In any case, such families would not be sending their daughters into such situations if they expected them to be gratifying the sexual needs of the household. In fact, many places banned any kind of sexual contact with servants, on pain of some fairly harsh fines, depending on the jurisdiction. At the same time, we also have plenty of evidence in the form of household management handbooks advising wives not to hire servants who were very pretty, and we even see some advising wives on what to do if they found their husband had been pursuing a servant sexually. For the record, these books usually call for the servant to be fired. Great. There are two things to say to explain this somewhat contradictory practice. First, in Southern Europe, the Roman cultural and legal traditions persisted more strongly, and in this tradition, all the members of the household were there at the pleasure of the pater familias. While slaves gradually became too expensive to procure for most households, the idea that the servants were under the thrall of the man of the house remained somewhat in force. As it happens, the same was true for the status of women in general in Southern Europe, as we will see in later episodes. For now, suffice it to say that the most valued servants in households were older women, who were no longer seen as sexual objects and who therefore were given all the deference due in any elderly person in most traditional societies. While trustworthy elderly female servants were certainly prized in Northern Europe, as well as Southern Europe, and while the danger of conflicts arising over a pretty face amongst the staff was certainly understood to exist in Northern Europe, there was a discernible difference. While women all over Europe were seen as responsible for the household in some way, in Northern Europe the status of the matron of the household was given more visceral authority. The servants were there at her pleasure, and if she decided to take a chance on a younger face, that was her business. If her husband was found in a compromising position with a servant, the servant would be fired because, you know, he was only human, but the husband would also be held to have committed a grievous wrong by the society, the church, and in some cases by the law. This difference is easy to overstate and slides into some ugly stereotypes about northern and southern European cultures, but it is something I have seen in documents that I have read, and at least the, there is a difference in terms of degree. There's even a way to see its effects in the wider social stereotypes and cultures. Because the risk of sexual relations with the master of the house was maybe less in Northern Europe, families may have been more accepting of the practice of sending their younger daughters out to work in such jobs. Observers from Southern Europe often note with some disgust how Northern European families don't seem to love their children and send them to be raised by strangers. This may have been a difference that originated in different sexual standards of behavior. 
Or maybe it's the other way around, where the practice of sending respectable daughters to live with other families came first, and then, as a result, society ended up taking a dim view of canoodling with the help. In any case, there is a second aspect of this question. Some portion of the people in positions of authority in society have, since time immemorial, used their power over others to extract sexual favors. Which is to say, sexual assault and rape were probably as common in the Middle Ages as they are now, if not more so. How smug we all might want to be about uh, that, if not more so, part of that sentence is a relative thing that may have been thrown into some question by the Me Too movement. In any case, when a girl was hired into a household as a servant, there was always a danger that the master of the household would force her to have sexual contact with him, and then use the threat of dishonor and the loss of her job to force her to hide it. Along a similar vein, it's worth mentioning that we have a disturbingly large amount of literary evidence from the early troubadours that indicates that something we might call casual sexual assault against the peasantry was seen as one of the perks of being on campaign by military men. We will return to the topic of rape in the episode on women and the law, but suffice it to say that in an era of misogyny and weak institutions, most of what I'm going to say from here onwards about sexuality amongst everyday women has this looming asterisk behind it, where all rules exist to some extent so long as there were no sexual predators in the vicinity. Let's call it here for the day. Expect a quickish turnaround for part two, but for now, let's call it quits, and be sure to come back next time for the rest of this episode of Wittenberg to Westphalia, Wars of the Reformation. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.